Hello everybody, welcome to the first of hopefully many stand-up, uh, stand-up, pop-up uh, online courses that I'm going to be running. Stand-up as well, not stand-up in the sense of like me being funny because I'm not funny, but stand-up because I am actually standing up. I guess that was the Freudian slip. But um, for you, those of you who are joining live, hello, thank you, pour yourself a drink. Uh, relax. Uh, we're going to do some kind of interesting philosophy. You're going to have a chance to ask questions. If you're not listening live, you can't ask questions. But I might set up a Facebook page, actually, because the idea is that I do want this to be a one-off. Okay? I, I travel around and I give talks. And most of the time, I come into a place, I give a talk for a day, and then I leave. And then I have to go to the next place. And I always have to assume that we're starting from pretty much the, you know, step one. But what I would like to do this year in 2017 is do, you know, six to 12 of these pop-up lectures and build on them, uh, go deeper into them. And so at the end of a year, you will have got, much deeper than if you hear me do kind of a one-off talk, lots of stories of Seamus and a few jokes. This is where we kind of get really to the grips and the heart of what pyrotheology is and the project that I've been part of, what, what, it's, what it's trying to get at, how it looks at the world, how it might benefit you personally and your communities. Because this, this isn't just intellectual. I mean, it is intellectual. You're going to get lots of theory. But it's also a technology of the self. What I want you to get out of these lectures is a way not just of thinking about the world that is hopefully helpful and useful to you, but also um, that it might help you be in the world differently. That it might help you in terms of your engagement with your family and your neighbour um, and uh, in your political engagement. So I'm going to offer a number of these pop-up courses. They're all going to be free. There will be donation options, and I really appreciate those who have donated. Uh, your money has been used to get a better camera, to get whiteboards, to buy me gin and tonic, so everything is good. Um, but this, I want these to be free and freely available um, to you all. Uh, just for those who are live, very quickly, there is a chat section. So use that to, to talk to each other, to comment, to slide me off, to flirt with each other. That's what the chat box is for. But if you have a question, put it in the Q&A box. Because the chat section kind of like goes so quick, I can't find questions. So if you have a question about anything that comes up in this uh, lecture that I'm going to give, put it in the Q&A because the second section, I'm going to start engaging with some of your questions, comments, etc. So basically, if you have something you want clarification-wise, something you don't understand that I've said, I haven't said it clearly enough or well enough, uh, you know, sometimes that's because I am not clear enough on it. But, uh, you know, you ask for clarification. If you have a comment, you know, stick it in. If you have a question, something that has come up, uh, then, then, then also ask that. So Q&A box for Q&A, chat box for chat. Who would have thought? <laughs> so today's lecture um, is called um, 
when atheism isn't atheist enough. And, and what I want to do is start at the very beginning. I want to talk about what it is to be human. Uh, what does it mean to be a human being? Um, and, and I'm going to talk about some things that um, we all hopefully experience and know, but perhaps um, don't think about uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. So there's three things I want to mention briefly. The first is we as human beings live not just uh, in terms of what we have, the life we have, we also have unlived lives, the lives that we don't have, all of us. And we're not simply our lived lives. We are also our unlived lives. If I relate to you as a person, I don't just relate to your lived life. I also relate to your unlived life, the life that you would like to live. Uh, you know, on a very simple level, it might be you'd prefer to have a different job, more money, um, be single or be married or whatever it is. But there's not just the way you live. There is also this desire for something else. And um, in a sense, we're all living towards something else. So there is the difference between what we have and what we would like to have. Simple enough. And this, what you would like to have, impacts your relationships. It impacts who you are. So it might be in terms of frustration, unhappiness, difficulties, whatever it is, but that is something that I have to take into consideration if I know you. You're not just what you, are, what you have, you're also what you'd like to have, what you don't have. And that comes out in your dreams. It comes out in your fantasies. It comes out in your symptoms, your bad back, your migraines. You know, you don't know why you've always got knots in your body. Sometimes it's because there's something about a different type of life that you're not letting yourself think about, but it's there and it's expressing itself in your body. Something saying you're not happy at the moment. Fatigue, right, that you're experiencing. And there's something about a life that unlived that you would like. The second thing that is very natural for us is that we live between who we are and who we would like to be. So who I am in terms of you know, the, the personality I have, my strengths and my weaknesses, and who I would like to be, the type of person I would enjoy being. So there is this who I am and who I, again, would like to be. And then the third thing is, and this is, a, a, you know, Kierkegaard makes a big um, deal of this. We live between having to act in the world and not knowing how we should act. Right? So we even if you don't act, even if you lie in bed, there's a certain sense in which you're deciding to lie in bed. You know, there's a sense of what, whatever you do or do not do, you're, you're making a decision. And yet, in a sense, 
there is no clear choice to make. Now, there are clearer choices to make in the sense of if you're going to get on a plane that is well-made and new or a plane that is really old and rickety, you know, you can go, okay, it's an easy choice. I'm going to get on the plane that's this brand new. So that's an easy choice. But still, you have to choose to get on the plane. Why are you getting on the plane? Because you're traveling to see some friends. Why are you doing that? Well, you know, I want to see them because I like them. Why do you like them? Why have you committed yourself to them? Right? Eventually, you get to a point where you're like, I don't know. Right? I don't know. And even whenever you're trying to choose what restaurant to go to with friends, and, you know, if you're an indecisive person and you're saying, well, we can have sushi, we can have Italian, we can have French, and it's difficult to make a decision because there is no authority that's coming down and saying you should eat X, Y, or Z. You kind of have to choose that. That's a very mundane example. But then there's much more serious examples to be single or to go out with someone, to engage in a, to, to vote or not to vote, who to vote for, et cetera, et cetera. These are decisions. And in a sense, we live between acting and not knowing. So we're between these. I write that, it'll become clear why I'm writing that in a different way. Because, well, the reason I'm writing it there is because we try to avoid this experience by either uh, checking out of life, like, you know, becoming um, uh, Acadia is a term, actually, um, A-C-E-D-I-A, Acadia, which is kind of like a depression where you just try to avoid the anxiety of having to act by just not doing anything, by not wanting to do anything. Like dep depression is a form of this. It's just where you, you just check out because the anxiety of having to choose is too much. Or on the other side, we try to find a higher authority. A higher authority, someone who will tell us what we should do, whether it's psychics or religion or a strong personality, someone who will help us to avoid this anxiety by telling us what we should do. So to be human, even though we don't acknowledge this or recognize it on a daily basis, to be human is to experience living between these things. What we have, what we would like to have, who we are, who we'd like to be, having to act, not knowing how we should act. Um, it's it's part of what it, of what it means to be human. Um, and anxiety, anxiety is the name we can give to this experience of living in the in between. Alex, what should I do? Who should I be? Like, by the way, you know, the difference between who you are and who you would like to be, you can call that doubt. Um, because, or no, sorry, not doubt, guilt. Guilt is when you're not living up to something. When you feel guilty, you have an idea of somebody you could be that would be better than who you are. If I was a nicer person, then I would have given money. If I was a nicer person, I would have been there for my friend. So guilt is the experience of saying there is a difference between who I am and who I would like to be. Um, dissatisfaction is the name we give to the difference between what we have and what we would like to have. When you're dissatisfied, you're dissatisfied because 
there's something else I could have, something that would be better. This is not satisfying me. You know, so there's there is there is something else. Okay, I'm actually just gonna open the QA box um, in case. And maybe a couple of times I'll just stop and have a look in case uh, in case there's something comes up. So these these three elements of being human. Now I want to take each in turn and very quickly describe why they exist, why they're there. So let's take uh, let's take the first one. But first, I'll look to see if there's any questions. Um, I have know some of you are using the Q and A box to chat. Naughty, naughty. Okay, no, nothing connected to this yet. Okay, so why is there a difference between? what we have and what we would like to have. Why do we have dissatisfaction, this basic human experience? Where does it come from? Well, at a very basic level, right, you can say that, and this is the creation story of psychoanalysis, right? Creation story of psychoanalysis says that at the very birth of subjectivity, at the very birth of the individual, not the physical body, the physical body happens at year dot, right? But the, the development of an ego, of a self, this is accompanied by a sense of loss, right? You cannot come into the world without experiencing a profound loss. Now, why, why do they say that? Well, the idea is this. Before there is a self, an I, a Peter Rollins. Before that, before there is a subject, me, and an object, the world, there is an oceanic oneness, right? In other words, there is no me and there is no not me. There is a body, and that body experiences things. But there is no self that goes, oh, that is pain, or that is hunger, or that is cold. There is this, there's this crazy explosion of feelings. But eventually, around the age of, uh, I think it's you know, um, six to 18 months, maybe it's three to 18 months, it's called the mirror phase. There is this point when the child begins to develop a sense of self. Now, when you develop a sense of self, you enter the world of subject and object. Now, before there is your selfhood, there is no subject or object for you. There is this just oceanic experience. But when you enter the world and you start to go, oh, I am a self, there is you and there is not you. There is your inner world and your outer world. And that experience of subject and object is an experience of profound loss because you have lost the kind of mystical oneness. But the truth is, and here's the trick, if you get this, you'll get everything I do this year. This is, the, this is kind of the fundamental point. You didn't lose anything. You didn't lose anything because you are the result of the loss. The loss is you. Your birthhood is a subject and object this world where there is an inner world and an outer world, that is experienced as a loss. But before that, there was no you to experience the oceanic oneness. Weirdly, when you're birthed into the world, you're like, I lost something. 
but you didn't lose anything. You are the loss. You are the sacrifice. You fell into beingness. And by the way, the first experience you get of that is, is with your primary caregiver. Um, you know, in a sense, it's the, the mother. Now, at a much more basic sense, it's kind of the mother's breast. It's where you're feeding, and then you're brought away from that, and you're brought back to it, and you're brought away from it, and you experience this set. You begin to experience a separation and return, separation and return. But in that weaning process where you experience a separation, you begin to develop your ego, your sense of self. And if that doesn't happen, something horrible occurs and you become Irish, right? It's the Irish disease. We're also close to our mothers, right? Um, but in psychoanalysis, it's actually called psychosis. And psychosis is where the individual has not separated adequately from the, their, their, their primary caregiver. Now, of course, they have physically, but they haven't psychologically. They haven't subjectively. So psychotic symptoms are where you have out-of-body experiences. Your, your selfhood is under threat. You can be colonized by voices, by ideas, by the other, right? Because, you know, in one sense, something has not solidified around your sense of self. So it's under threat from, from dissipation. But what happens as we become a self is we separate. We feel a loss. So in a sense, what we have is here, is here is the self. And as you become a subject, you experience this gap in you. Something has gone wrong. This, by the way, is the Oedipal complex. Why was Freud so interested in this Oedipus story? I mean, very simply, the Oedipus story from a Freudian perspective, it's, you know, a son wants to sleep with his mother. He doesn't know it's his mother, but he wants to sleep with his mother. The father is the prohibition, and he kills the father, and he sleeps with his mother, and he thinks that this is going to be wonderful, right? But it's a disaster. It's a, it's cursed. He thinks it's going to be a blessing. If he gets to be with this woman, everything will be wonderful. But it's totally not. Um, in a sense, this is a story about our primordial birth into the world. We experience a separation from the first other, symbolized by the mother. We feel we've lost something, so we want to return to it. We think that that would be wonderful. We, we feel a lack in our being. And if we could only get back to that which we lost, everything would be wonderful. But we get it, and it's a disaster. This is the psychoanalytic response to the New Age wisdom of you can have your dreams, you can fulfill your dreams. You know, absolutely, fulfill your dreams, but Freud would say, so that you can experience the object horror of your dreams, so that you can experience how they don't work. You think it's a blessing to get that which will make you whole and complete. No, it's a curse, right? And we'll get back to that in a second. But that's the eatable story. The reason is, you know, there's a feeling of loss. You want to get back to the thing that you feel you've lost, and then everything would be wonderful. But it's not. Um, so the child experiences this loss, this separation, this, this, this gap in their being, and that causes them to fantasize 
something that will fill that. Now, at first, that will be maybe being closer to the mother or the father or whatever. But over time, as we grow, we might think, oh, if only I had enough money, if only I had enough fame, if only I had X, Y, or Z, then I would be happy, right? This sense of lack within us, what's what Pascal calls a God-shaped hole, this gap that's within us, we want to fill, we want to be made whole and complete again. But we can't because we are the lack. The lack is part of who we are. Um, uh, this is beautifully described by Freud when he talks about the pleasure principle and the reality principle. The pleasure principle is when you just as a child want things, not selfishly, not narcissistically, you just want to be warm, you want food, you want whatever, right? You want these things. That's pleasure principle. We want the things that will give us peace, harmony, happiness. But then we hit the reality principle. And the reality principle, basically anything that stops you from getting what you want, right? The reality principle is what gets in the way. It's the obstacle. So you want to climb a tree but your body won't let you because you're, you're young and you're weak. You want to eat chocolate all the time, but your parents won't let you. You want to win board games all the time, but there are other people who want to play those board games and want to win. So though, that's the pleasure principle and the reality principle. And being a child is about navigating that place. Where, and that's kind of temper tantrums and stuff come out because you're like, I want X, but I can't have it. And you're having to negotiate and work out how you live in this place between pleasure principle and the reality principle. But the interesting thing is, we think that if we got the pleasure principle without reality principle, then we'd be happy. That's the fantasy. The fantasy is reality gets in the way. I want to eat chocolate. I want to climb the tree. I want to win all the games that I play. But reality gets in the way. If I could get rid of reality, then I could be truly happy. But the idea is that actually the pleasure principle without the reality principle would make you unhappy. If you got everything you wanted all of the time, you wouldn't find yourself in paradise or in heaven. It would be a type of hell. And my friend Jay Baker, some of you know, he, we, he talked once about heaven and his vision of heaven was, I mean, he was joking when he said this, but basically a place where he could be anything he wants, anytime. So he could be, you know, he's in the Batman. He's like, I could be Batman for a thousand years. I'm like, well, what would you do after that? Well, then I'd be the Joker. What would you do after that? Well, then I'd be try Superman. Like, you know, you could do anything. Basically, heaven is a virtual reality machine without the reality principle where you can be and do anything you want all the time. Right? And we're actually relatively close to that. <laughs> you know, there, with the development of virtual reality, you might be able to immerse yourself in a wor world where you can, in the virtual sense, fly, go other to other worlds, um, you know, be whoever you want to be, do whatever you want to do. Right? That's the pleasure principle without the reality principle. But the problem is, if you get everything all the time, then the enjoyment disappears. Because actually the reality principle isn't there to limit your pleasure. It's there to allow you to have some pleasure. 
So if you want to climb Everest, the fact that you have to train, you have to buy equipment that takes a lot of work and a lot of effort is not the thing that is the obstacle to the pleasure of climbing Everest. It's actually what enables you to get some pleasure from the activity itself. Right? So we th and melancholia is the name for the pleasure principle without the reality principle. It, um, melancholia is the name you give to getting everything you want. You get everything you want. Maybe when you're young and you're, say, at a Christian college and you think getting married, having two kids, getting a dog, having a picket fence, whatever is like, there, that would make me happy. And you get it. Well, the problem is you can't, you don't know why you're unhappy because you've got everything you think you wanted. But there's melancholia somewhere in your being, you're not happy. Something has gone wrong. It's the melancholia of getting everything you want. Now, at the other side, there is people who say, well, forget about the pleasure principle, right? Embrace reality, embrace death, embrace the nothingness, right? So, in a sense, to prevent you from living in the in-between, they say not pursue what will make you happy. They go, no, that doesn't work. Withdraw from the world, de-invest from the world, you know? and, and there you will find a type of contentment. Now, of course, interestingly, in order to do that, that's, you do that often to get some pleasure. So the first, the first irony was not a big irony, but it's often you want to de-invest from the world because you've experienced how the frenetic pursuit of more and more and more does not bring happiness and peace and harmony. So then you go towards the reality principle, accept life, accept death, de-invest from the world, and, and, and whatever, right? But again, the pleasure principle holds on to that. But if you're able to actually go to the very end point with the reality principle, that's ultimately, um, it's, it's, kind of, it's not suicide, actually, because suicide is often something people do in order to have one last small, tiny bit of pleasure, right? Often people commit suicide because they think, oh, the person I'm with would be better if I was gone. You know, the world would be better if I wasn't there. Or they will be sorry when I leave. Right? All of those are ways of trying to squeeze one last bit of pleasure from the world. But the, so the reality principle of like the pleasure principle is probably this, this notion of the depression, deep, deep soul depression in which you just basically check out of life. Something that they saw happen in the medieval period with monks um, who completely isolated themselves from the world. They experienced this listlessness, this, this complete lack of interest in their own world and anybody else's world. But So there's that extreme where you go to avoid the anxiety of life, right? We, we try to go with the reality principle, forget about the pleasure principle, or we go for the pleasure principle and we forget about the reality principle. But neither of them quite work. And the closer you get to one or the other, which is very, very difficult to do, but we either come towards a deep depression with the reality principle or a deep melancholia if you're successful in getting everything you want with, with, with a minimal amount of reality, right? 
So those are, and, and there are industries dedicated to these. So on this diagram, if you're listening on audio, I apologize. But on this diagram, this is the pleasure principle, and this is the reality principle. And there are industries that are dedicated to each of these religions of the pleasure principle, and those are religions of the secret. If you you know think about what you want and, and, and imagine it, you can materialize it, you can have it, you can you know, prosperity gospel, name it and claim it. Or you've got reality principle. You go like, check out of the world, remove yourself from existence, and you will find peace. And interestingly, you could say that Western religions tend towards the pleasure principle, and Eastern religions tend towards the reality principle. Now, of course, there are lots of exceptions. That's just like a very simple thing where you inform some forms of Buddhism, it, it, there's like a, you know, remove yourself from the cycle of desire. And in some forms of like Western Christianity, there is, you, you know, God will make you whole, give you the answers, make you complete. Yeah. And if you think about it in terms of uh, the afterlife, within some forms of Buddhism, we have Nirvana. Nirvana is the, the illusionary self re-entering the nothingness. So that's kind of reality principle. Um, and in, in Christianity, you have, you know, the way we've been brought up, it's like you've got heaven where you will be complete, you know, your tears will be wiped away, you will find a oneness and a fulfillment that's been lacking. So that's kind of pleasure principle. So nirvana is here and heaven is here. Um, okay, so all of this is saying that to a certain extent we are trying to, as human beings, avoid the anxiety of this space, um, this nothingness. Death, by the way, is one of the names for nothingness, right? Death is the name for the nothingness that is to come that nothingness that is still to arrive. Um, and uh, you, you, some of you will know that Islamic parable where uh, a servant is sent down to the markets in Baghdad to get some groceries. And while he's down in the markets, going through all the shops, he brushes past this woman in black. She turns to him, looks at him, points her finger, and he realizes that it is death. Death is staring at him. So he goes pale as a ghost, runs back to his master and says, I was down in the markets of Baghdad and I brushed against death. She looked me in the eyes and I realized that she is after me. So the guy says, take my fastest horse, gallop as fast as you can. If you do not stop and if you're lucky, you will be able to get to the city of Samara by midnight. You can hide there. Right? So the servant gets on the fastest horse and takes off as fast as he can go. So the merchant decides, I'm going to go down into the marketplace and I'm going to confront death and ask why she is scaring my servant. So he goes down and there he finds her, sipping coffee at one of the stalls. He says to her, what are you doing scaring my workers? 
And death says, oh, I wasn't trying to scare him. I was just surprised. I have a meeting with him at midnight in Samara. I was thinking he's going to have to get his skates on. In other words, you cannot escape death. Wherever you run, death will be waiting for you. Right? So that's one notion of nothingness is death. But what we're exploring here is a different form of death. Not death that is at the end of life. A death that is actually within life. Because you could, you could overcome death. You know, potentially, you know, uh, technology will get to a point where we can hold off death effectively, either by, you know, improving our biology or downloading our minds into the cloud, um, turning eventually into energy. Who knows what's possible? Um, you know, promises of the afterlife are more often heard now in technological circles than in religious circles. Um, or death is a fiction. Either it's an illusion or when we die in this world, we wake up in another, right? So, you know, maybe death is the end of life, doesn't exist or will be overcome, but it doesn't get rid of the idea of death that is within life, the nothingness that inhabits life. And that's what I'm talking about here, because you live in a gap, a nothingness, a lack between what you have and what you'd like to have, who you are, who you'd like to be, having to act and not knowing what to act. This is living in a type of space of nothingness, experiencing anxiety. Anxiety is the name for the psychological experience of the nothing in your life. I found something on the web about it. For some reason, Siri just turned on <laughs> um, and started looking up death in life. Uh, so we live in this space of this, this nothingness, this death that is in life. That's the theological nothingness. The biological nothingness is something else, but this, this living in the lack that I am not what I'd like to be. I am not who I would like to be. I do not know how to live. This is, this is the nothingness. It's the nothingness that is something. There's two types of nothingness. There's a nothingness that is nothing. You know, like a, you, um, you don't have money. That's nothing. You, you lack money. And there's debt. Debt is where you owe money. Debt is there's a lack, but it's a lack that binds you to jobs that you hate, to institutions you despise, gives you heart attacks, you know, all of that. So there is lack of money and then there is debt and nothingness that is something. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about how to be human is to experience this lack in our being, this anxiety and how there are industries of the pleasure principle and the reality principle that attempt to help us escape that. So we'll just take a second and see if anyone's got any questions on that stuff. Um, okay, let's see. Um... Oh yeah, Heather says, did you say the pleasure principle without the reality principle equals melancholia? Yes. Yes, the pleasure principle without the reality principle, you know, whenever you, the closer you get to the pleasure principle without reality principle, the more you get melancholia. And then vice versa is depression, this deep depression. Yeah. Um, you mentioned death is nothingness. I'd be interested 
to know your thoughts or just be um thoughts about the idea of oh you got cut off but yes um death is a is a form of nothingness is a form of nothingness that is something there's nothingness that is something Regarding the reality principle, I often feel this desire to go and live quietly in a wooden hut in the forest. Um, what is the difference between wanting to do such a thing because you're escaping something unidentified in your life and simply trying to remove yourself from things which bring you unhappiness, like traffic and money? So yeah, so the, that idea of going into the woods, retreating from the world, very good thing. I mean, that can be a very positive thing to do. But if you're doing it, at an extreme to de-invest from existence, um, then, um, then, then it can become unhealthy. It can be an unhealthy thing. A friend of mine, he uh, just watched Stargate for two years. Um, he, kinda, he, lost it. he left his job, he started playing poker, he just played computer games and watched Stargate. He didn't even enjoy Stargate. He just picked it randomly. It was like a, an act of performance art where he just watch one episode if i'm going to watch every episode and every spin-off episode because life is meaningless why not give myself to that as much as anything else and that was his way of de-investing from the world um and of course you know that was a an unhealthy um, experience uh, for him and something he had to overcome so yeah it, it's it's difficult to say you know like in, in theory it's easy um but in practice, it's very difficult to know like, which, which do we tend towards. Do you tend more towards pleasure principle or do you tend more towards the reality principle? Do you tend to try to avoid the anxiety of your existence through pretending you have what you need to have and you are who you need to, are, you need to be or pursuing that? Or do you tend towards getting rid of the anxiety of life by just removing yourself from it and staying in bed all day? Now, those are those are kind of two different ways we can go. Now, the reason why I have outlined all of this is because I want to talk about idolatry and God and faith. Right now, traditionally in the contemporary understanding of religion we have in the West today, God is the name we give to that which guarantees that we can have what we want to have, we can know what we need to know, we can be who we need to be, right? That we have a higher authority who will tell us how to act. So God is the guarantor of meaning. Descartes calls God the guarantor of meaning. But basically, God becomes that which tells us you know, in this world or the next, we can have what we need to have. In this world or the next, we can be who we want to be. And that we have a higher authority who will tell us how to act and what to think, what the right answer is. Um, so God, as the guarantor of meaning, helps us to escape our anxiety through identifying with the pleasure principle in, in, in a certain form. Um, but of course, according to this, it doesn't work. All we do is repress our anxieties, repress our unknowing, repress our fears. Um, so for example, for some of us who grew up in, say, a Christian world, you might have had this idea that we have the truth. We know the right dogma. Now, of course, in truth, you have doubts and unknowing and questioning. And so you repress that. 
And the evidence of the repression is reading Josh McDowell, evidence that demands a verdict. That's not evidence that you are secure in your beliefs. That's generally hints that you're not. It's called reaction formation, where you do the opposite of what you are. You know, the more you immerse yourself in apologetics, often it shows that you're trying to not convince anybody else. You might be, but primarily you're trying to convince yourself that you have the truth, that you have the answer. You repress those doubts, but then they come out in your body in symptoms. They come out in explosions of anger. They come out in as they bad backs or headaches or whatever it is that this this doubt you're repressing um, comes back in some sort of way. And my first book was actually about saying, well, how do we actually allow for doubt and unknowing to come to the surface? It's not that we should doubt. It's that we already do doubt. We just sometimes hide it from ourselves. We do want to admit it to ourselves. Um, and uh, it's, this is, by the way, what Paul Tillich means when he talks about the difference between an unbroken myth and a broken myth. For him, a myth is a narrative, a story that tells us who we are, why we're here, what, what things are about. And an unbroken myth is when you believe your story, absolutely. Your story coheres with reality. And for him, that's not a bad thing at all. Of course, you grew up thinking you're right, right? Of course, you grew up thinking that what you've been given works and the way that you look at the world is correct. That's not unusual to tell it. But he says, eventually you come to a point where someone challenges you or you challenge yourself. Now, at that point, you have an option. You have a number of options. The first option is you run away from that questioning and that critique and you push it down, right? You repress it. Or you might then change to another story. You might go, okay, that's not working, so I'm going to take on this other story. But you take it on in the same way, in an unbroken way. Or, he says, you keep your story, but you realize it is broken. In other words, it's full of cracks. It's a, it's a symbol, it's a way of interacting with the world, it's a way of understanding and being in the world. But it's full of ruptures and it, it's not something that is like some sort of totalizing whole. And for Tillich, fundamentalism then isn't connected to an unbroken myth. It's connected to a broken myth that is repressed. In other words, fundamentalism arises not through certainty, but through a profound uncertainty and fear and weakness that is repressed. So it looks like strength. So if you're, if you're confident in what you believe, that's not fundamentalism, that just might be naivety. <laughs> um, but, but when you're confronted with other opinions from you know, reasonable sources and you refuse to listen to them, then that's, that's what we mean by fundamentalism today, that kind of reactionary, defensive response. Right. So in this, in this makeup that we've looked at in this schema, God is that which tells us we have the right answer. We have it, we have it. You know, whether through a glass darkly, so it's in the next life that everything will completely make sense, that God guarantees meaning, structure, guarantees our world makes sense. Now, atheism, a lot of contemporary atheist thinking, rejects this God, right? 
it rejects this God that, that means we're right and they're wrong and everything, you know, we, we have the answer, et cetera, et cetera, right? And it rightly rejects that God, I think. Um, but the problem is you can get rid of the notion of God. God is some guy in the sky who's like looking out for you and making sure that you're all right. God who blesses your army, your football team, your country. Right? You can get rid of that God who, who says, don't be anxious, you're sorted, you're, you're a-okay, you're in the right team. Get rid of that God. But then other things fill that space. Um, because we still don't want to live in the place of anxiety. So it might be history. You know, Stalin, you know, talked about history kind of uh, being the, the power of the world, or Hitler talks about providence, destiny. But so anything, anything can come in, money, fame, you know, uh, good things, science, whatever, anything can come in and act fundamentally the same way that God acts in religious Christianity, as a way to say, you're right, you're whole, you're complete, or if you're not, you can be. Don't worry, it's just around the corner. There are sacred forms of the pleasure principle, and there are secular forms. The sacred form might be name it and claim it, and the sacred, the, uh, you know, prosperity gospel, and the secular form might be the secret, right? You can just imagine and visualize what you need, right? But there is that message in Western culture that you can do it, you can have what you want, you can be what you want, you're already whole, you're already complete, or you can be whole and you can be complete, right? And bam, there you go. Now, this helps you understand why I'm against original blessing. Kind of liberal Christianity and progressive Christianity has this idea that human beings were born out of original blessing, wholeness and completeness, and then we fail, some sort of fall into incompleteness, and then there will be a return back to wholeness, right? That's the, that's the liberal kind of, broadly speaking, the liberal kind of understanding. That's why there are some liberal authors who write books against original sin. Sin means lack, original lack, an original sense of lack. They go, no, 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 it's original blessing. There's blessing before there's lack. And it sounds very reasonable, it sounds very good. But in this theory, we are born out of a lack. To be human is to experience an original sin, an original lack. Now, I don't mean sin in any ethical way, in any moral way. It just, it's, for philosophers out there, it's ontological. To be human is to experience a lack, a gap in our being. But that gap becomes a problem when we think it can be filled when we think we can be made whole and complete, when we think there's something out there that can fix that lack in us, that's where the problem arises. That's where the morality of sin comes in, where we frantically pursue things to the destruction of ourselves, our families, our, 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 our whole country, our planet, frenetically looking for something that will make us whole and complete. Right? So that's the ontic, or that's the ethical dimension of, of sin. But original sin just means what psychoanalysis means by this idea of a lack, or existentialism means by alienation. It's to be human is to be incomplete, but we experience that negatively and painfully at first. And so we run through religion to be able to protect us from that experience. And as I say, if you take away God, something else can fulfill that. 
LA is the most religious place I've ever been in. Everybody's promising you can escape your anxiety through taking the right drug or having enough fame or having enough money or looking the right way. Okay, so there's, there's a sec secular form of saying you can be whole and complete. Or, or, by the way, interestingly, also in LA, there's the reality principle. You do spiritual practices, de-invest from the world, then you'll be whole and complete. And what happens is many people bounce between the two. So they, at the weekend, they go on their spiritual retreat to come out of the world. They take a holiday, they go see a guru, whatever, and then they go back into the world so that they can be refreshed and get into the frenetic pursuit of consumerism, you know, like after having a good sleep. So that's actually probably, you know, one of the primary things we do. We bounce between the two of these to try to avoid living in the center. What I want to argue is that Christianity proper is about bringing us into the heart of anxiety, or what Kierkegaard calls angst. This, by the way, is called the absurd. This middle place. Because um, the absurd is the name of living in a world where we have to act and we don't know how to act. In a world where we live between being and you know who we are and who we'd like to be what we have and what we'd like to have that's the absurd that's techn the technical term for the absurd is living in that space and having to go shit this is this is difficult this is hard you know the anxiety of life that's that's what Camus means by the absurd that's what Kierkegaard is getting at with the notion of the absurd and when Kierkegaard says that Christianity helps us embrace the absurd he is saying that this god the god who guarantees our world and our escape from unknowing from dissatisfaction from doubt and guilt all of that that's that's not the god of christianity that's an idol that has to be destroyed and this is why i entitled this lecture when atheism is not atheistic enough because anything that just critiques the idea of God as a Santa Claus in the sky who's giving out blessings, right? That's not enough. You have to critique the very site in which that God dwells, the very idea that there is some way for us to escape our anxiety, living to escaping the absurd, right? There's other things will fill that, other things will promise an escape from that. What I want to argue with parotheology is parotheology doesn't put us in the absurd. We're already there. It helps us acknowledge that, accept it, and celebrate it, and embrace it. Very, very difficult to do. But we, it acknowledges and celebrates living in this place of the absurd. Um, and the reason for that is because, right, think about the crucifixion. The crucifixion, um, i draw a symbol here, the cross. In the crucifixion, God as the highest being, the guarantor of meaning, God is what we think about as God, right? The highest principle meets the lowest, death, you know, the grit and grime of the world, the dirt of existence, nakedness, suffering, uh, torture, and being snuffed out 
the highest and the lowest meet. That's absurd. Saying Christ crucified is the original punk. It's the original absurdity. In a sense, if we think of God as that which establishes the world, makes everything meaningful and makes everything good, and then that God dies by the world, like that is just, that just is a kind of short circuit. It's the original absurdism, right? Now, absurdity, you see it in art through Dadaism. Dada is the, the artistic expression of the absurd, where these poems, these cabaret shows, these pieces of art challenge everything we know about art theory, everything we know about the world. They confuse us, they shock us. We go, what does that mean? I don't know how to conceptualize that. Uh, you have this in punk. Punk music is absurdism in music. It's like, what is this music? You know, when, when it first arrived, it, it arrived as that which ruptured everything we understood. Um, you have Occupy Wall Street is probably the absurd in politics, where people are going, what do you want? I don't understand what you want, because it's not, they're not asking for something, they're critiquing what actually exists, right? You're like, I don't understand, I don't get it, right? Uh, in comedy, Monty Python um, uh, or Chris Morris, these are, these are expressions of the absurd. Comedy that kind of breaks through all the conventions of what comedy should be. The cross is like that. It's the original punk. It's the original Monty Python. It's the original absurdity. That's why Kierkegaard calls it comedic. It's comedy. Because it's like, it's, it's where the highest and the lowest meet, where God dies. Right? It, it's, it's just like saying square circle. It's like, it's completely impossible to understand. It doesn't make sense. So God in the crucifixion is neither the highest nor the lowest. Strangely, God is seen as the place where the highest and the lowest smash together, right? The place where everything fails to make sense, where God says to God, why have you forsaken me? Right? This, this place of unknowing, this place of chaos, this place where nothing makes sense. So the weird thing is, when you feel in the world that you are separated from the absolute, when you feel full of anxiety and doubt and unknowing, that's when you are identifying most closely with God. In Christianity, in this radical moment of Christianity, the, the place where you experience the absurdity of life is, is the point where, in a sense, you carry the cross. That, that is crazy. That's a kind of crazy notion. That's what, that's what I am um, uh, getting across me. Uh, like, uh, it's, it's basically an absurd cross that you can't make it. You know those impossible diagrams where the bits don't fit, they don't make sense. So I'm getting across an absurdly made to kind of like reference this, to help remind us of what the crucifixion is. It is this place where the highest and the lowest, the pleasure principle, the reality principle, they clash together. And weirdly, Christianity says that that is where the absolute is. That's where the absolute is, right in that place and that experience. So the Christian experience is to live here. Now, that would be very depressing. Um, but it doesn't end there. This is about robbing death of its sting, of lightening the load of existence. The yoke of existence is lightened. So in other words, it's saying that 
Yes, you live in that space of the in-between. Yes, that is where you experience the divine. Yes, that is where God is. But that's a wonderful thing. It's not an easy thing. It doesn't make you happy or anything like that. But it is you can you can experience joy in that. This is where you turn your doubt and your unknowing from something unhappy and painful into something wonderful and beautiful. It's when you move from unraveling, where your life is unraveling, I'm unraveling, I'm in the, my, my beliefs are unraveling, who I am is unraveling, this is terrible. You move from unraveling to raveling. Now interestingly, to ravel and to unravel, they mean exactly the same thing. To ravel means to pull apart. But it just doesn't sound as negative. It sounds quite positive, right? That's why I like it. But you don't, you don't move from unraveling to creating something new that is solid and good. You simply change how you experience the unraveling. You, you, you accept that life has contingency and unknowing. You, you accept the absurdity of, of your experience of life. But you go yes to it. You say, bring it on. You become satisfied in your dissatisfaction. You find peace in the antagonism of existence. You find some sort of harmony in this lack of harmony. Um, this is what Camus calls the rebel, right? The conservative is the one who identifies more with the reality principle. The conservative is the one who sides with the world as it is. They say, don't change things, don't mess things up, <coughs> keep it the way it is. So the conservative is in league with the reality principle. The revolutionary is the one who is in league with the pleasure principle in the sense that the revolutionary is the one who says, we can create a new world, a better world, a world where we are happy, where we are content, a new utopia, right? The problem is they're unhappy with the world as it is, and they are only happy in imagining this future world. And if they ever get it, it doesn't turn out the way they expect it. Lots of revolutionaries are killed by their own <coughs> creations, if they ever are able to bring them into being, right? Think of religious cults where they, you know, try to live out their utopia. What's the alternative? From, for Camus, the alternative is the rebel. It's the rebel is the one who lives in the absurd. They experience the space between who they are and who they'd like to be, what they have and what they would like to have, and they enjoy it. And they... They fight for a better world. They fight for you know better relationships, better this, better that. But they never think that they're going to get to a point where it ends. They enjoy the fight itself. They've turned the dissatisfaction of the revolutionary into its own type of enjoyment. So they enjoy their revolutionary activity, even if they never get to the end point, because the rebel realizes there is no end point. What there is is the continuation of the world um, and we fight. And to be human is to fight and to move, to give ourselves over to movement.
right, to enjoy movement. And it's like what Derrida talks about when he talks about the undeconstructible and deconstruction. We always deconstruct the world. We always pull apart what we think is unjust, unfree, and bad, and we fight for the good. But the good, the just, freedom, democracy, these words and these ideas are always still to come. They're eschatological. They're always just over the horizon. And our fighting for justice is its own pleasure, is its own reward. Our fighting for freedom, our fighting for love is its own, its own beauty, its own reward. What we do is we take our suffering and we sublimate it into fuel that drives us forward. You don't escape your anxiety. That's the bad news of this, right? The good news of Christianity is often said, you can be whole, you can be complete, you can have the answers. But that's bad news. The more you pursue that, the more uncertain you are, the more depressed you are, the worse it is. The good news of Christianity, according to the power of theology, is life is shit and you don't have the answers and you can't be whole and you can't be complete. Now, of course, that strikes us as bad news. <laughs> but actually, if we accept it and become the rebel, it's good news. You can't be whole and complete. You can't have all the answers. You can't know. In fact, that pursuit in and of itself is the problem, right? Can I, just for a second, articulate this, that this is at the very start of the biblical tradition. This is why I consider myself you know, deeply orthodox, right? Because the Bible itself starts with an Oedipus story, right? Remember I said Oedipus, is you got the Oedipus wants to sleep with his mother. <coughs> the father says no. The death of the father sleeps with his mother. It's a curse. Well, in Adam and Eve, <coughs> you've got Adam and Eve walking around the garden. Then you've got this prohibition. You can't. And behind the prohibition, you've got this tree with this fruit, right? You can't eat of that fruit. So it's got a similar setup. And then the serpent. The serpent says, you can be like God if you eat this fruit from this tree that you're not allowed to eat. Now, interestingly, the serpent says, you shall be like God. What does that mean? Well, that means you shall lack the lack. To be like God traditionally is to lack the lack, to be whole and complete, to be like, to be God. To be a God is to be whole. So the serpent is saying, if you eat that piece of fruit, you will be whole and complete. Right? They break through the prohibition, they take the fruit, and it's a curse, not a blessing. Right? Now, in psychoanalysis, the serpent is called a superego. The superego is the voice that is saying, the good news is you can be whole and complete. <laughs> if only you say the right prayer, do the right thing, pay for the right uh, online pop-up lecture, <laughs> whatever it is, then things will work out for you. That is called the superego. The superego is the voice always telling you that you have to do something. Even if it's you have to have more friends, you should be out on Friday night, you shouldn't be in. It's always the you should, you should, you should. In psychoanalysis, it's called the superego. In theology, it's called the serpent. The serpent is an internal voice that is, that is other. That tells you, if you do something, you'll be whole and complete. And weirdly, in religious Christianity, we think the serpent is God. You know, this voice that says, if only you do this, 
you know, say this prayer, do this thing, whatever it is, then you'll be whole and complete. But in the biblical story, that's the serpent. Contrast that with grace. Grace is the idea that you don't have to do anything. That, you know, you're not okay, it's not okay, and that's okay, right? So grace is stop the frenetic pursuit. Look honestly at your life, and it's okay, right? That's the opposite of the serpent. That's crushing the serpent's head. Exorcism is a theological way of saying pulling that voice that's always telling you that you need to do X, Y, and Z, getting rid of that voice, right? Now, there's still an external voice. Like, I live in LA, and there's, you go to a party, there's this voice saying, have a good time, enjoy, 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 enjoy. That's fine, if, as long as it's not inside you. If it's outside you, you can cope with it, you can pretend, you can play along, as long as you can go to the bathroom and go, Phew. you know, that's a bit much. But when the voice is inside you, saying, enjoy, 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 you can't escape from it. You can't go to the bathroom. You just, there's cocaine there, whatever. You know, there's no escape from this pursuit of you should be having a good time. You should, you should, you should. Yeah. Exorcism is getting rid of that internal voice. The voice still exists in society, but the problem is when it exists within you. Yeah. Um, that's why Shizek talks about the difference between traditional parents and liberal contemporary parents. The traditional parents say to their kid, you've got to see granny. And the kid says, I don't want to see granny. So the parents say, get your coat, get in the car and see granny. Right? Whereas the contemporary parents will go, you don't want to see granny? Oh, well, sit down. You really do, don't you? You want to do the right thing. Granny loves you. Granny cares for you. And you, you would not want granny to be unhappy. And then Shizek says, that's even worse. Not only does the kid have to go and see granny, but the kid has to like it. Right? In the traditional family, the kid can say inside, well, at least if I'm older, I can you know, decide not to go. But within the contemporary family, the, kid, the kid's own inner voice is turned against him. He has, to, he has to enjoy going and doing what he doesn't want to do. So this is the internalization of the external voice. Um, uh, you know, this happens as we grew up. You know, someone tells us what we are and aren't allowed to do, and eventually we internalize that voice. And that's the problem. When we internalize it, we can't escape from it. This is why Shizek interprets the first, uh, the first uh, commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. He, he interprets it literally. Um, he says, God is saying, you'll have no gods in front of me. You know, have gods privately behind the scenes, absolutely, but be discreet. You know, don't do it in public. It's like a father who says you know, to his daughter or whatever, don't get drunk in the house. It's like, well, yeah, you're allowed to get drunk. Of course, go out and get drunk. Just be discreet about it. Don't, don't you know, talk about it. Shout it from the rooftops. How disappointed is the father who finds out that their, their kids are not actually going and getting drunk? You know, they're, they're actually obeying the command, right? The idea is you've got the command, but, you know, you know, when you internalize it, you can't escape. But if it's external, you can escape it. So all of that to say, um, this voice, this serpentine voice saying, be this, be that, be X, be Z, you know, you can be happy, you can be whole, you can be complete. When that is within you, and you can't escape it, because it's in every magazine, every movie, every TV show, but when it's within you, it's oppressive and it's destructive. The liturgical space is the exorcism of that voice so that you can experience grace, which is, I don't have to do anything. Not because you're already whole and complete, but because life 
is anxiety and anxiousness and unknowing and doubts and brokenness. And actually, that's okay. In fact, that's what makes it fun. That's what makes it great. The, re the ultimate rebel is Marlon Brando, who in The Wild Ones famously is sitting in a coffee shop and this girl says to him, Johnny, what are you rebelling against? And of course, he famously turns around, this leader of the um, uh, uh, black uh, rebel motorcycle club, says, what do you got? What do you got? In other words, I'm going to be a rebel all my life. I'm not re rebelling against one thing, that when uh, I get it, then I stop, I sit back. No, to be human is to be a rebel. It's to embrace that, to, to revel and ravel in being a rebel. Okay. Okay, and by the way, then I should end with this. That's why with atheism, an atheism that simply attacks the place of God as the guarantor of meaning, the escape from anxiety and brokenness, doesn't go far enough. That actually the crucifixion is more atheist than atheism in the sense that it says you have to go into the place of unknowing, absurdity. Uh, you have to go into the place of the nothingness. You have to dwell there. The, the Christianity doesn't, doesn't, not only does it not help you escape that, but actually picking up your cross and carrying it is a direct invitation into it. That's where it goes further. It's not simply critiquing God as guarantor of meaning. It's not allowing other things to take that place. It's saying that any God that takes that place, sacred or secular, is problematic. And Christianity is the invitation into the absurd. It's the invitation into living in that place. And that's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called religionless Christianity. A Christianity where he says you give up God to live as though God is not given as an object that fixes everything is to live fully before God and with God. In other words, to give yourself wholly to the world in fear and trembling and unknowing. That is where you stand with the prophets. That is where you stand with the subversive, radical message of Christianity. Whenever you are a combative individual in the service of love. You know, embracing the world. Now, that's why the liturgical service has two elements. One, to help you go into the absurd. And two, which we haven't talked about today, but we'll talk about maybe at the next one, is to sensitize us to the one absolute, which is that humans are subjects, other people are subjects, who say, do not murder me with their face, as Levinas says. Other subjects are not there to be used and abused and thrown away. And so what we do is we enter a world where we don't know what we have to do. There's no higher authority that's going to tell us what to do. But where we're sensitive and we're sensitized to the other, to our neighbor. And we realize that we have to act even though we don't know how to act. We have to do something even though we don't know what that something is. We have to take responsibility for our existence. We have to admit when we screw up. And we can pat ourselves on the back if things go well, but we never can sit back and stop because the rebellious spirit, um, the spirit, I think, of Christianity is that you're always fighting, always challenging, always moving forward in the dark and in the unknowing um, in service of love itself. Okay.
there you go. There are some thoughts. Let's see how many of you are still with us and have questions. Um, let me see. Uh, Gina asks, then is eschatology another form of idolatry? I think what you're referring to then is I'm saying that, well, what I'm saying is that there's an eschatological dimension to freedom, to justice, to democracy, to all of the best things we have. But that's the opposite of idolatry for me. It's the opposite of idolatry. To say that democracy has an eschatological development is to say that you can never grasp it. If you ever encounter a culture that says, we have democracy, it's wrong. It's idolatrous. Actually, idolatry is the opposite of eschatology. Um, this is why Paul Tillich defines faith. He, well, he defines faith as an ultimate concern, giving yourself absolutely to something. But he says idolatrous faith, because he says there's bad faith. I just watched um, Valkyrie last night, and that showed a bad type of faith, where in Nazi Germany, the SS, you know, would take an oath to their Fuhrer. And, you know, right or wrong, good or bad, they would die for their Fuhrer, right? That's ultimate concern because they're going to live and die for something, right? That's like, that's amazing. But it's giving yourself absolutely to something that is not absolute, to something that is finite. So that's demonic faith for Tillich. Non-demonic faith is when you give yourself to something but you give yourself to the eschatological dimension of that. So for example, you could be a patriot and say, America, right or wrong, good or bad, I will live and die for it, right? That's idolatrous faith. But you could be a patriot and say, America, I love America, right? And I believe America at its best stands for love, democracy and freedom and equality. And so when any finite government stands in the way of those things. I will, I will die protecting them. Right? That's also patriotism. But, but you're committing yourself to a non-finite eschatological dimension of your country. And, and so for, for Tillich, that's the way that you're expressing something of true faith in that act. So when I talk about democracy as eschatological, what I'm kind of trying to do is protect it from idolatry. And it's very similar to what Buddhists say when they say, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Because in a sense, the Buddha is never something that is there, something you can touch, taste, and see. The Buddha is always still to arrive. You know? Oh, and by the way, when I said Buddhism is often more the reality principle, I think Zen Buddhism, Zen Buddhism is from what I've read and seen is more about embracing the absurd. And paro-theology from Western is uh, more about the absurd. It's one of them, I forgot to mention that. Um, uh, and Alexander says, is there a place for a weak God in the absurd, pulling us forward without guarantee? Absolutely, in fact, obviously you know what you're talking about because you use the word weak God. John Caputo, great philosopher, great friend, he talks about the weak God. Um, he, he, he's kind of referencing Paul. He talks about the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of armies. You know? But the, the weakness of God for John Caputo, in a sense, could be said to be God who dwells in, in doubt and in knowing and in brokenness in the dying child, 
in, in, in the child who is held in Mother Teresa's arms. And she holds, and she says, I hold the child, and when I hold the child, I realize the child is God. And then I look again, and the child is the child. For Mother Teresa, God is, is in fragile flesh, is in this space. So I, yeah, I think that terminology of saying that, that you know, for Tillich, or sorry, um, well, for Caputo, sorry, God is the call that calls us to live in this space of the in-between and calls us in that space to fight for those who are the outsiders, those who have, who have been given no voice, those who have been silenced, um, to fight for um, those who, who have not been given the tools to fight for themselves. But actually, more than that, um, to realize that actually we are often the oppressors and that we need to listen to the other and be critiqued by them. That's a subject maybe for another time, but um, I've, I've talked about it elsewhere, this idea that, that actually we go to the poor and the oppressed, not because we're good news to them, but because they are good news to us, because they tell us there's something wrong with our system. You know, the homeless are there because of a problem within our society, and so they are the voice of God. That's what the weakness of God is. The weakness of God is saying, God is found in, in the outsiders. Because, and because when you listen to the outsider, they speak to you of a problem within your society. They are the symptom of a problem. They are the sight of God. And that weakness is stronger than any army, stronger than any force. Right. Yeah. Uh, Jasper uh, buys is saying, are there atheists that you know that practice a kind of power of atheism? Um, Pete, would love to hear you and someone like that conversation. Yes, in power theology, I have to say this, is it's kind of post-theistic and post-atheistic. Like, you can be theist, atheist, agnostic, and embrace all of this, this Christology. This is a Christology. This is directly from the biblical text, as far as I can see, whatever, my reading anyway. Um, and and, and it, it problematizes those very distinctions. Can I say just a couple of things about that? I want to do a whole lecture on this. But one, very simply, is actually, if we're honest, there are very few of us who are atheists or theists or agnostics. Um, there are atheists who don't believe in the supernatural, but when you turn out the lights at night, they think there are ghosts under the bed, right? And there are theists who go to church every week and believe, but um, actually in their being, uh, rely more on the material world and, and than on anything like that or whatever. Or there's basically, or there's parts of us. And by the way, I'm not saying that the atheist is a hypocrite or the theist, not at all. What I'm saying is that often we don't know what we believe. Our consciousness is not what we believe. Our consciousness is designed to protect us from knowing what we believe often. So we, it, it, it provides a, a kind of, a, it's like we're a criminal and um, we've created a, a uh, an alibi. Our beliefs are our alibi. You know, I love my parents. When was the last time you saw them? Oh, six months ago. I'm not sure if you do. That's why in psychoanalysis, they listen to dreams. You have a dream where your brother drowns. Well, that was terrible. My brother drowned. Then the analyst goes, well, it was your dream. You know, your brother didn't really drown. It was in your dream that he drowned. Are you pissed off with him? You go, no, I was really upset when he drowned. Yeah, but you stuck him in the water. You know, um, and then you go, yeah, actually, I'm really angry with them. But you didn't even realize it. You didn't even know what you believed. 
You know, this, we, we believe all kinds of things we don't believe. So I, I want to problematize the atheist theism thing anyway and go, you know, it's not what we think. You know, atheism and theism are much more complicated. And then if you, if you look at the Jewish tradition, which I'm more interested in, especially with Levinas, he defines atheism from a Jewish perspective. Now, this isn't from a universal perspective. From the Jewish perspective, he says atheism is shutting yourself off from the cry of the other. And theism is opening yourself up to the cry of the other. Now, when you, and he, but he's not saying, oh, I'm also believing in God. For Levinas, it's like, oh, no, no, you're, you stand with the prophets if you open yourself up to your neighbor. You hear their cry and you respond. And if you shut yourself off from the cry of the other, able to walk down the street, blanking every suffering and pain that you walk past, then that's atheism. Because for, for Levinas, God is not an object that you believe in or not. God is the weak force, as Alexander was saying, um, that, we, well, that we hear in the other, that we have to respond to. Um, and so that, again, problematizes our, our, our notions of theism and atheism that we have, um, especially in the U.S. today. So, yeah, um, I don't know if that makes sense. Um, oh, yeah, uh, Rika, is it Rika? That's a nice name. Um, could you speak a little to how this all relates to the contemporary evangelical Christian idea of salvation? I'm also thinking of Royal Bell's Love Wins here, which makes a passionate case for what I would interpret as wholeness reunification after death for all people. Ha. What do you make of the biblical passages that reference some ultimate future reconciliation? Very good. There's so much in that. Uh, you know, we, that's a subject for another talk. But, but what I, what I want to say is, yeah, this is about a salvation from salvation. What I'm arguing for, this is what my next book's about, is that technically, you know, it, a lot of us as Christians are wanting to get rid of hell, right? We want to get rid of hell, but we want to keep heaven. Right? But that's a universal thing, whether you believe in heaven and hell, literally. We want to get rid of all the bad, and we want to have a place of wholeness and completeness. But what I want to argue is actually heaven and hell are interrelated. Um, if heaven, in a sense, in, in this stuff is pleasure principle and hell is reality principle, then, then in one sense they're, they're intertwined. You cannot get one without the other. And the real challenge is getting rid of both and embracing the earth. And there's that Islamic tale of this holy woman who carries fire and water with her. And when she's asked why, she says, I carry water to extinguish hell and fire to burn up heaven so that I can be in the world. And the reason, because she wants to act without any fear of retribution or desire for reward. And the whole idea is if she is able to do that, then she is fulfilling the very nature of the religion by not acting for reward or out of fear of punishment, but to be in the world. So I do interpret contemporary evangelical notions of salvation as, as being in league with or conspiring with the pleasure principle and therefore being ultimately kind of problematic. Um, and and I, I do worry about liberal and progressive forms of Christianity and their affirmation of wholeness and completeness. Now, you kind of, why would I be against that? I'm not against it if it works. My only concern is that I don't think it works. I, I think it, you have to repress 
your your brokenness and your unknowing. And instead, my advocacy is for something like AA. AA is where you realize you are broken. You are a bit crap. You're honest with yourself about it in a community of grace where everyone accepts you for who you are. You don't have to change. You just sit there and eventually you learn to you know, accept that you're accepted. Now, once you're able to do that, then you do the 12 steps, which are pragmatic ways to help you kind of like, you know, change your life. But the very first step is sitting in a circle with steel, coffee and old donuts saying, well, I'm an alcoholic, admitting the truth uh, in a community of grace. And, uh, and that for me is salvation. That's a form, because I'm not talking about longevity. You know, salvation is often, eternal life is often seen as the, the continuation of life forever. But like, if you don't enjoy your life, that's not a blessing, that's a curse. That would be horrific. Heaven would be millions of people screaming for death, right? Um, it would be like being locked into a virtual reality system where you get everything you want for all eternity. It would be horrible. Um, eternal life fundamentally means a transformation in your mode of life. That's what I'm interested in. And then as to whether it continues or not, that's another question. But the first question is, eternal life, if it's to mean anything at all, is a different quantitative way of being in the world. Um, and, and I worry that evangelicalism is focused on the pleasure principle and that going on forever, rather than Kierkegaard and the absurd. Uh, Okay, here's Garrett saying, Pete, do you think your interpretation um, of the crucifixion as a manifestation of the absurd runs counter to the New Testament interpretation of that event, which tries to tie up all of the sense? <laughs> In other words, it seems that you see the cross as a radical rupturing of all attempts to find meaning, whereas the New Testament interprets the cross as the most meaningful event. Jesus died to forgive your sins. Very good. Okay, yes, yes, yes. This, this, you, you're, you're getting exactly what I'm saying. Well, I'm arguing, I, I think it does start in the Bible, but I think it's mostly post-Bible. All atonement theories are attempts, I would argue, to take the absurd out of the cross, right? to render the crucifixion meaningful. There's loads of them. There's like four or five like dominant ones, and then there's hundreds of small ones. right? And there's continual attempts to render the crucifixion meaningful. My argument is that the ultimate atonement theory is, is that none of these work, that they are all attempts to domesticate the absurdity of the crucifixion. Right? Um, and the reason for that is, think about it like Shoah, you know, which is the other word for Holocaust, but Holocaust means like religious sacrifice, so a lot of Jewish thinkers use the term Shoah. Right? Shoah, in a sense, cannot be rendered meaningful. It is that which ruptures meaning. If you start to put meaning on it, oh, it, it was a test of the people. It was to purify the people. Um, it was because of their sin, whatever. You know, as soon as you do that, you kind of do something profoundly terrible to Shoah, which is in a sense that which occurs in the world, which ruptures all of our understanding of meaning, of what's right and wrong and good and bad. It, it acts as this explosion in the playground of our meaningful worlds. Um, World War One was the same experience for the European intellectuals. And I want to say the cross is the same experience of Christianity, that the cross defies being rendered meaningful. Hence, there's so many atonement theories. It is the eruption into our world. This is why uh, uh, Kierkegaard, by the way, says, I love this, 
It's like, you know, basically, you can say anything you want about Jesus, anything you want about Christianity, but do not, from, don't, do not ever commit the terrible, heinous crime of saying that Jesus was wise or Jesus was ethical or Christianity is wise or Christianity is ethical. Oh, please don't do that. <laughs> and it's quite funny because, of course, that's what the contemporary church does in its liberal form. But what Kierkegaard means, he says, Christianity is founded and Judaism on absurdity. A guy going up to kill his son. No ethical teacher would say, obey an inner voice telling you to kill your kid. No wisdom teacher would say that is a wise thing to do. You know, it, it, it just doesn't make sense. In the same way, the crucifixion is not ethical or wise. It's not always, it, it kind of defies what we think of as the way the world works. So think of it like parables. Parables don't so much tell you what to think about the world as break apart how you already understand the world. Parables you know, break apart who you think is a terrorist and a freedom fighter, who you think is good and bad, right and wrong, inside and outside. It, it, it problematizes all of that. Parables are, are forms of discourse as in putting you off course. They, they throw you, you, you off. And this is very conservative. Some conservative Christians, even Karl Barth, was into this kind of notion that, that revelation is never that which brings meaning into the world. It kind of ruptures your world of meaning. It's always a no to your yes. It's always a, a, a crazy absurdity. So now, I, if I, I would love to go further with your question as you bring in the forgiveness of sin. I do actually think that that this is what the crucifixion means. But forgiveness of sin, what does that mean? We say these words, forgiveness of sin. But if sin means lack and forgiveness, what does forgiveness mean? Well, think of it in terms of economics. To pay a debt is to fill a nothingness. Remember I said debt is a nothingness, it is something. It's a nothingness that binds us and destroys us. Well, to pay a debt means to fill the lack with money. Right? To forgive a debt means to render the nothingness nothing. To forgive a debt isn't to pay a debt. The year of Jubilee wasn't about payment of debts, it was about forgiveness of debts. So to forgive a debt is to take a nothingness that is something and render it a nothingness that is nothing. What I'm talking about with the crucifixion is when you embrace the cross, you take it on and you go into this experience of the nothing. The experience of sin simply means that you render that nothingness into something, as in that pain, doubt, unknowing, dissatisfactions destroying your life, and you rob it of its thing. You embrace it and you say yes to it. And so that's what I believe forgiveness of sin means. Very, very simple. It's no heebie-jeebie, no mystical, anything like that. It's forgiveness of sin means robbing this lack of its sting by embracing the absurdity of the cross. I think, and I want to argue, and I will argue. I want to do a tour where I argue in seminaries against any professors that will that that are for atonement theories. I like the conservative ones better because at least they sound mental, right? The liberal ones sound more plausible, so they're much more dangerous. But I think that this actually gets us to the core. And by the way, oh, the reason Garrett that I would say actually that, that I don't think it's in the Bible what you're saying is because Paul the Apostle says the crucifixion is a stumbling block for those who want signs and foolishness for those who seek wisdom. 
Wisdom and signs are the two ways that we justify our position. God's on our side because look, our football team won, that person was healed. Or God's on our side because you know we've got the most reasonable position. Paul the Apostle says the cross is, is foolishness to wisdom and a stumbling block for signs. In other words, the crucifixion comes into the world as that which disrupts all of our ways of justifying ourselves and our positions and our world. It's that which ruptures and pulls it apart. A book I'd recommend, but I think it's a thousand dollars online at the moment because I keep recommending it and people buy it. And so there's only these ridiculously expensive copies. But I have a PDF of it. And because it's way out of print for so long, um, I think I can give it to some of you. It's called Christ and the End of Meaning by a theologian called Hessert. And he argues for this very point from a theological perspective. I'd really recommend that book. It's one of the few theological books I actually think is properly good. <laughs> um, okay, we've been going for ages, but I've got a bit more time. And by the way, you can check out at any point. So if you're getting tired, don't worry. You've got this. You can listen to it at a later date. I want to, ask, I want to look at a few more questions. Um, um, LK says, talk about apocalypse. Um, okay, very briefly, I'm just going to tie that in a few seconds. Apocalypse meaning the incoming of the absolutely unknown, the impossible, what you could never expect. I believe Christianity is apocalyptic um, in the sense of, uh, again, it is the rupturing of our worlds of meaning. It's the rupturing of the way we see the world. This is why John Caputo says, God is not a projection. God is a projectile. Um, Feuerbach. If you, Karl Barth really liked Feuerbach, and Feuerbach was the first guy to systematically show that religion is pretty much projection. That just as people's dogs look like their owners, right, or, or at least their idealized image of themselves, um, where, you know, you'll have a, a little dog which is really cute or whatever, that's, you know, the person's personality or a big rough dog, the guy wants to be butch, whatever, right? In the same way, people's gods look like themselves. So that was Feuerbach's point. Now you think Karl Barth, this arch-conservative and theologian, is going to say, no, Feuerbach's wrong. Well, no. Barth says, Feuerbach's right. Religion, in terms of contemporary religion, liberal Christianity, is projection. You know, it, it, God is just a projection of our highest values, of our highest sense of self, right? But then Barth comes in and says, Revelation is that which breaks into our world of meaning, of right and wrong, our projections, and breaks them apart. So when John Caputo says God is not projection, God is projectile, he's saying that at its best, religion or religionless religion, paratheology, radical theology, is about disrupting our worlds of meaning, breaking up new possibilities. Um, helping us see things from different angles, embracing the contingency of existence. I can't remember. Oh, so that, that's apocalypse. Christianity is apocalyptic. Um, I realized, by the way, that I never got to say, I did the eatable complex, I never got to say why we live between who we are and who we'd like to be. So I'm going to have to save that for another one. Um, uh, yeah, uh, Riley asks, how does Tony Jones think or feel about your rejection of atonement theory? Yes, Tony Jones wrote a book on the atonement, and I, I debated with him, and I debated this very point. So yeah, no, we, you know, we're fundamentally opposed on that, 
on that point. Um, and, and, but to be honest, this puts me uh, fundamentally opposed to most religious Christianity, where um, atonement, the only atonement theory that I go with is uh, Girard, René Girard, because I, I think his atonement theory is ultimately a rejection of metaphysical atonement theories. But they're all, the, I think the truth is in the fact there's so many. <laughs> That's where the truth is. So someone like Tony's looking for the truth and which one's more accurate. Like when, no, the truth is the fact there's so many and none of them work. The domestication of meaning, enter into the rupture of meaning. To embrace the crucifixion is to embrace the rupture of meaning. It's to embrace foolishness, lack of wisdom, or lack of understanding. Um, Now I see there's loads of questions coming up. It's like they're bouncing everywhere. Oh my goodness, this is this is difficult. Um, oh yes, Brandon's asking about how we put this into practice. Uh, all I can say, Brandon, is I, I'm hoping that will be my next lecture because this all sounds great, but what does it mean to have a community that embraces the absurd? What does it mean to have a community that embraces data and that is a combative embrace of the absurd, a militantly embracing love? And, and engaging with the world, becoming a rebel. What does that look like? How does, how does that become? And by the way, I use militant language in the sense of true militancy, uh, not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. You know, violence against flesh and blood isn't violent at all. It's like usually in the service of keeping everything the way it is. I'm talking about Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King, Mahatma Gandhi, that violence against structures and systems of oppression. You know, that giving oneself over to this eschatological dimension of justice. We will look at that, I promise. Um... Okay. Um. Oh yeah, Aaron's saying all the atomic theories don't work, but could they also all, all be true? I, you know, in a sense, you could say like there's there's truth in everything in in a dialectic sense. Like often an atomic theory comes up because there is a problem and a, and, a, and a new way of thinking arises that is useful. But my problem is anything that tries to totalize this problem. By the way, th this, this movement in theology, pyrotheology is similar to the movement from, quant from Newtonian physics to quantum mechanics. And it's similar to the move in, in kind of, uh, you know, with Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, with Gödel in terms of mathematics not being at one with itself. What I mean by that is, traditionally, there is the world is knowable, and outside there is something that's unknown. So in principle, everything is knowable, everything makes sense. And one thing that we don't know is why the whole world is like that, right? But we know everything within the world. Then Newtonian, or Newtonian physics is then replaced by quantum mechanics in a sense, or quantum mechanics comes out and says, no, the unknown is not outside the known. The unknown is inside the known. There is some, there's an inherent antagonism hard baked into reality that means that we can never fully understand it. There's dualities, there's, there's superposition, there's, um, there's, a, a, there's a sense in which um, uh, an, an, an agonistic element is in, in the nature of reality itself. And in mathematics, it's, it's the move that says the mathematics itself can never become a system that's whole and complete. There is an uncertainty 
is built into the mathematical systems. Higher theology is saying similar movement, which is that in the world, there is an inherent unknowability and inherent antagonism that cannot be overcome. But what you have to do in the same way as, as in mathematics and in, in, uh, in quantum mechanics is you have to work with the antagonism, embrace it, conceptualize it. You know, that's, that's the move. Um, I think this is at the heart of Christianity. I mean, that's the whole idea of the incarnation. The unknown, the transcendent that's outside the world is inside the world. It's still unknown and transcendent, but it's a transcendence that is within the world, that which makes the world not at one with itself. So that, that's what it means by whenever, so if someone asks me, but okay, does this mean we deconstruct everything, pure relativism, like how do we embrace anything? Well, no, you've got your tradition. You've got your idea of the world. And you're given that before you can critique it, it's already in you. You're given a language, you're given a culture, you're read books. By the time you become a critical thinker at 12, 14, 18, 20, you're already full of ideas. And you either double down and go, you know what, I'm going to say everything I've been told is right. Or you become critical and you critically engage with it. But you have that tradition and you believe it, you work with it, but you deconstruct it. You pull things out, you push things in, you rethink it in relation to others. And there's practices you can do that enable that that we'll talk about in the next session. But you can, you can do that. So the tradition is there, but you deconstruct it, you work with it, you, you, you operate in the midst of it. Because in a sense, the tradition is never whole and complete. It is antagonistic, it's problematic, and um, needs to be rethought eternally, always with the other in mind, always with the neighbor in mind. Um, let's see. LK is asking, how was that Colorado gin? I might be drinking that Colorado gin actually at the moment. Is it, did you get me that Colorado gin? Very nice. Thank you very much. Um, okay, let me see. I'll do, I'll do one more and then I'll finish up. Let's see. Um, uh, Angela says, so how do the teachings of Jesus, like you can be healed, one with God, the giving up of self-interest for the, for the work. How does that work into the absurd? I, mean, I want to argue that, that actually, well, one is, what does it mean to be with God? If, you, if one takes the crucifixion seriously, then, then to be one with God is to experience, I would say, that not being at one with God, the thoroughness into the world, into life without, without foundation. But I'd also argue that I think what Jesus seems to be teaching is, and for me, Jesus is a rebel um, um, in the sense of Jesus is born into a world, is in a world and is questioning it, is weaponizing discontent, I, the discontent of the world, bringing it together, making it useful, making it something that is productive to critique the political, religious, and structural systems. But, but in a sense, to, to embrace the crucifixion, to embrace the message of Jesus, the crucifixion was not identity. It was the loss of identity. To be crucified meant that you were cursed with God, no longer a citizen, and you were naked outside the city, no longer um, having any, any symbolic value. So to identify with the cross was not to identify with a new identity. It was to identify with the loss of identity. 
to identify with Christ, to identify with the exclusion of meaning, and then you know living within that. So whenever, so I see that all in the teachings of Jesus, and that means when someone says to me, "Should we teach Christianity to our kids?" Because you're gonna have to deconstruct it and all of that. And, you know, will it will it become oppressive? Well, my answer is actually, what if Christianity is not something is not the the body of tradition? That's Christendom, which can be good and can be bad. That's the body of knowledge. But Christianity, as in the heart of Christianity, is the disruptive, antagonistic engagement with the world, whatever world you're in. So in other words, to teach Christianity at its best is to tell, say, the parable of the Good Samaritan. But to realize that the Good Samaritan story is teaching us that who we think is right and wrong, good and bad, inside and outside, isn't as simple as that. And so actually, whenever you put that into the context for your kid, who's this figure in your school, who's this figure in your school, you're basically teaching them to be antagonistic to the world of meaning and the structures, the cultural, political, and religious ideologies of the day. And that is to be true to, to Christianity. So for me, Christianity, in a sense, its heart is the rebel. Its heart is uh, being in the world but not of it, critiquing for the sake of the neighbor. And when you are able to give yourself to that, and we're, it's very hard for us to do that, <laughs> but if we're ever able to, we're touching on kind of the message of Christianity. So even like, you know, the idea of healing, um, uh, you know, healing for me is, is Again, the forgiveness of sin, which means the rendering the nothingness nothing, to be able to live in the world. And by the way, it's called the Epoch of the Holy Ghost, where God is in the community of people living and loving together. So I don't know, that's, that's my reading. When I read the text, I see this, but I, I needed this lens. As soon as I put on this lens, I go, okay, this, this helps me understand things that I never understood with the more religious lens. I ultimately think Christianity is a religionless religion. It's a religion that critiques religion. Um, okay, Gareth says, so the middle ground is the absurd because of what I have, uh, oh, sorry, it disappeared, because of what I have and what I would like to have at the same, oh, so the middle ground is the absurd because of what I have and would like to have at the same time or what I am and what I would like to be simultaneously. Could you, uh, could you go more in the direction of the absurd? Could you go more to how the absurd is applied to being human, please? Okay. Um, I think, I mean, yeah, the absurd is, is the middle, is living in the middle. I think that's it. And, and the reason why I say it's to be human is because, and this is where I'll bring in the second thing I didn't mention, is to, is to be human is whenever you're born, for example, right, um, not only are you separated from the primary caregiver experiencing a loss, and having to live with that loss, you experience yourself as weak and broken. You're rubbish, you know, you're falling around all the time, you can't walk. And one of the things that happens when you're very young is that you look in the mirror, often it's a literal mirror, but it's called the mirror phase, where you, you see yourself in the mirror and you look kind of better than you feel inside because you don't see all your inner chaos. You see this mirror and then your parent is behind you saying, look how good you are, look how strong you are, look how beautiful you are. And you start to relate to the child in the mirror. You say, that is me. But this other figure is, is also telling you that that figure is strong and good and beautiful. So the mirror phase, there's a point where a child sees themselves in the mirror and they identify themselves. But they also then have an authority figure behind them who is legitimating that 
image and saying, that's you, that's, that, and you're amazing, right? Now, this is the start of the space between who you are and who you'd like to be. Who you are is a weak kind of crap kid, and who you'd like to be is the kid in the mirror who's beautiful and strong, and you kind of bring those two together. And we have technology now that shows the mirror phase in action, because for Lacan, this is not just a phase, it's for all of life, and it's in the selfie. A selfie is never for the self, it's always for another, right? You take a selfie, what do you do with it? You text it to somebody, you put it on your Instagram, you put it on your Facebook, because you need another externally to legitimate it, to like it. And we think that's funny or bad, but what would be weirder is if you took selfies and you never shared them with anybody. You just had a, you had a folder, like an album, and you just looked at your own selfies and you never had to share it with anybody else, that would be psychotic, right? So what you have in a selfie is you identify with the person in the photograph, but people say, oh, look how beautiful you are, look how cool and adventurous you are. Or a selfie, which isn't of you, it's of your car, but it's kind of a selfie because it's the car symbolically shows who you'd like to be. Oh, that's a beautiful car. Wow, you know, you must have lots of money, whatever. Um, the point is... We, because of this very early development, we live between who we are, feeling our anxiety, our brokenness, our fears, who we'd like to be. And whenever we look in the mirror, if we're about to go out and we look good, we're scared, we're nervous, will we'll, anybody talk to us in this party? But we look at ourselves in the mirror and that person in the mirror looks like they've got everything sorted out. They look, they look good, right? And so... We identify with them, and that's great. But actually, to be human is to be in the middle. I, at the moment, am lecturing to you on a computer, and I am looking at myself as I lecture. And it's very hard not to. It's very hard to look at the camera and not at myself. And what I'm seeing in this image, in a sense, not consciously, but you know, is this somebody who's lecturing and knows this stuff and is drawing all of this stuff? But inside, I don't feel like that. I'm just the chaos. I'm a mess. But that's why I'm actually doing a type of mirror phase right now with, with you. And so again, it's just like that's what it is to be human, to live in that space of the in-between. But we try to often avoid that by identifying with our ideal selves, pretending we are that, or you know, trying to check out of society. Okay, we've been going for like two hours. So well done if you survived this, if you're able to do the whole thing. Don't worry if you weren't, because I'm going to send it to you. Although, what's the point telling you that? Because you haven't lasted to this point. But thank you for checking in on this. Um, I will, if I can, I, I don't know. When I turn this off, I might lose all of your questions. I hope I don't. Um, it's because I might kind of look through them. And maybe what I might do is actually set up a Facebook page and invite all of you into it so that we can continue this conversation if you would like. Um, because this is only the first of hopefully, as I say, six or more lectures in the course of the year where we, where we will build on this. Um, so just to finish, then what all I've argued here is we live between reality principle and the pleasure principle. God is often that which tries to help us escape from our anxiety. The good news is you can escape from it, you can be whole, complete, have the answers. But actually that's bad news. And we repress things and it becomes painful. Crucifixion represents an embrace of the absurd. It reflects 
going into the place of unknowing and brokenness, accepting that, finding life there, turning that into fuel so that we can move forward. It is the space of the rebel, and that is power of theology, and I think is the good news of Christianity. Thank you for checking in. Um, definitely send me your thoughts. I'll set up that Facebook page. Take care.